0: So uh, we're start a new series here uh, during our Thanksgiving month, a uh, little bit ironic, I think, isn't it, that in the same month, Thanksgiving, where we spend uh, one day, during one month of the entire year to be thankful for what we have, and then follow that up with Black Friday. Isn't that funny? I've always thought that's kind of ironic, right? It's like, all right, we're done with the Thanksgiving stuff. Let's get on to the shopping. Let's get on to the accumulating more stuff. Um, The very next day, after thanking God for all he's given us, we're like, that ain't enough. I want me some bargains. Everybody say doorbusters. Yes, (laughs) doorbusters. I uh, um, I used to be an avid Black Friday shopper. I'm proud to tell you. Back when, um, do you remember when Office Max would have Black Friday? You remember that? Raise your hand if you remember Office Max. Everybody over 40. Nobody under 40. Office Max would do things like they would have Black Friday door busters like a four pack of thumb drives for $8. You remember that? And after a while, I got a drawer full of thumb drives. and I'm like, I don't think I need to buy any more thumb drives. I don't even know what's on them or if I've ever used them. But eventually, I retired because of this scene here. I eventually retired because I was like, it's actually dangerous now. (laughs) Literally, um, Raquel would be texting me while I'm out Black Friday, and she's like, please check in every few minutes just to make sure that you're coming home. So, um, you know, so the rest of the year after Thanksgiving, do you like Thanksgiving? Most of you like Thanksgiving? There's a lot about it to like, right? And uh, I actually find it heartwarming to be in a position culturally where the culture is like being thankful. I love that. I think the, the fact that the whole culture is taking some time to be thankful um, and be grateful for what we already have. Uh, and I happen to notice that um, after Thanksgiving, not only is there Black Friday immediately, and I think Black Friday, is it true that for a while there, recently before the, the COVID shutdowns, it was like Black Friday wasn't even Friday anymore. It was like Black Thursday night. You remember that? Like you just get done with your dessert and it's time to pack up the newspapers and the ads and and go. But um, So here's what I've noticed. After the one day, Thanksgiving, we kind of hit the ground with Black Friday and for the rest of the year, and I don't know how you feel about this or if you've sensed this, but it seems like 364 days we were then peppered with an infinite number of ways of offers on how to learn to get more stuff to um, I'm invited and instructed all day every day even on my Instagram feed tips and tricks to get healthier and wealthier 364 days a year You can have all the information that you want, any program you want, any subscription you want to get healthier and wealthier. We're going to stop for one day a year and thank God for what we have and spend the rest of our lives accumulating more or at least being invited to accumulate more, right? And I hope that you sense that that's, in some ways, that's the current of our culture. The current of our culture is bigger, better, more. And if you're not happy, there's a reason because you need... Bigger, better, and more stuff. Um, I will not spend any time with this, but it reminds me of the Veggie Tale. Do you remember the Veggie Tale that had the Stuff Mart scene with Madame Blueberry? If you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube because it is it's 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 absolutely priceless to see Madame Blueberry get sucked into Stuff Mart. Everything her heart desired, everything she wanted. Was in stuff right. Have you heard of that one? Have you seen that one before? if you've if you got some of you are like, I memorized it. Honestly, I did. It's a, a game changer. So um, there's really it's very difficult to get away from the steady stream of tips and tricks on how to get healthier and wealthier. very difficult to get um, away from that stream. And Even famous TV preachers have gotten in on offering you tips and tricks on how to get wealthier. You may not think this is real, but this is real. Here's a book from a famous TV preacher uh, who isn't on anymore, I don't think, but he was like, let's not pretend anymore. Let's just name the book How to Get Rich and Have Everything You Ever Wanted. Isn't that amazing? I got to tell you, this is an absolute scam, but I love the boldness I do. I love, the, I love the title just going like, well, why don't we just say what we're doing, right? Like, why don't we stop pretending anymore? How to be rich and have everything you ever wanted by a TV evangelist. I mean, it's amazing. Seems incredible to me. But for biblical Christians, there's a challenge, and the challenge for biblical Christians is not how to get more. The challenge for biblical Christians is how to give more. That's the challenge, It's natural and normal for us to have a drive to get more, but Christians are challenged to do less getting. You know where I'm going with this? And more giving. That's the challenge. And that's the challenge that Christians have what it takes. They have the power, and they have the um, freedom, and they have the supply to be the most generous people on the planet because of God's generosity. They lack for nothing. Christians have a heavenly Father who owns the universe and He provides everything that they could possibly need. And their no-strings-attached generosity in the early church was a hallmark. That's what made, in large part, what made the local church famous. Um, in the early church age was there no-strings-attached generosity. And it certainly could be, and it certainly should be, one of the main reasons why today the modern local church is famous in communities. And today we're going to answer two questions. We're going to answer two questions. Number one, what does God expect from Christians? And number two, how should they give what God expects. What does God expect and how should they give it? And it and one way to think of it is this way, Christians, people who uh, belong to God's church, they need transformation and training to mature out of a getting attitude and into a giving attitude. And there's reasons for that and there's good reasons for that and most of us have a getting attitude because we want to survive. We don't want to be in distress and financial hardship. So it's natural, especially in our capitalistic culture and economic system, to have a getting attitude. It's kind of... Um, anybody ever remember their parents saying, it's time to get a job? You remember that? And you're like, I'm in fourth grade. Can we be patient? Can you just give me, give me a... Don't have a driver's license yet. So here's what, here's what I'm, I'm trying to ask you to think about today, okay? Would you think about the possibility that Christians, people who belong to Jesus, they do need transformation on the heart, but they also need uh, 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 training in their hands on how to move from one attitude to another attitude, from a getting to a giving. And it's not always simple. It's not always fast. Uh, Paul warned, the Apostle Paul wrote wrote so much of the uh, uh, letters in the New Testament. Paul says, when he's writing in the New Testament, he says to the church something that I think is important for us. He says, please don't be preoccupied with your own individual needs. Also, he said, don't just be preoccupied with what your own local church needs. And we see that today with the Every Child Initiative. That's our ability and our willingness to say, we aren't just going to fill our time and attention with what we need here or in our own individual lives. We're asking the question, what do children need? who are at some point or other in their life parentless and in some cases loveless. And church members are to look beyond their own needs and show concern for God's people, show concern for uh, uh, orphans and widows, uh, the fatherless. But the church isn't the government. So the church can't say, you know what, Um, we want a greater capacity financially, so we're just going to raise taxes. The church has a unique Um, perspective. And from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we're able to actually see and discern some abiding principles that are there for God's church, which should drive a Christian's management or stewardship of their gifts and their resources. So, uh, And this looks like learning to give. If this is your first Sunday here or your recently, your first or second Sunday would you say this with me? Say, uh-oh. Uh-oh. We are diving into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 where Paul says to the church members, church members are givers. They're generous people. They open their heart and they open their hand and they spend more time focused on giving than they do on getting. And so uh, for a lot of people, this is uh, this is a topic that they're uncomfortable with. We'll talk about this in in, in future Sundays and it has to do with how deeply rooted it is in uh, our heart and our identity. So it tends to be a challenge for a lot of people. But look at what Paul says to the church at Corinth. By the way, the church at Corinth was misbehaving. The church at Corinth had so many problems that two letters Paul wrote were like, I need to fix all the problems that I'm hearing you have. And he went on and on and on, fixing all the different kinds of problems that they had. And one of the problems that they had was generosity. In fact, uh, eventually we may or may not get there, but Paul says, look, the, the, the church at Corinth, he says, look, I'm going to challenge you to give, and just when you think you can't give because times are so lean and you're having such a hardship, even the church at Macedonia has already outgiven you, and they're in poverty. So um, he writes directly to the church. And look where he starts. Here in chapter 8, verse 7, he says, Since you, church members who belong to God, are a part of a church family, you Christians, here's what he says, Since you excel in so many ways, you excel in your faith, Love this affirmation. You also excel in your gifted speakers. You have speakers that people are coming to hear from all over the countryside because your speakers are so gifted. Something that you're experiencing right now. (laughs) The Bible is so applicable and relevant, isn't it? You excel in your knowledge It's amazing what you know, church. It's amazing how much you've learned. It's amazing how much you've packed into that brain. Intellectual knowledge. You're so excellent at your knowledge and your enthusiasm. In fact, he is writing to the church at Corinth where he had to say, your enthusiasm is so overwhelming, it's actually gotten out of control. I need to calm it down a little bit. Ease up and make sure there's order in your services because there's so much passion and there's so much enthusiasm that it needs now some very, very simple structure. And you excel in your love for us from us. Paul says, we love you and you excel in your love from us. But he doesn't stop there. There's so many ways the church excels. But Paul has to make a special note after this list of things that they excel at and he says, but wait... There's more. But wait, there's more. I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving. It's amazing that he puts this in the list, and my impression is that it's in the list because it's not natural and normal. I think it's in the list because some of those other things kind of maybe speak to how much how good the reputation is of the church when you have people who are smart and they have full of knowledge and they're passionate and they have gifted speakers and all this kind of maybe helps them build the reputation but he says let's let's continue on with our excellence but I want you to excel also in the gracious act of giving Christians who give are doing something gracious what does that mean giving is not based on whether or not someone deserves it Giving is separate from whether or not someone deserves it. So, look how straightforward he's he's being here. He says Christians should excel in giving. They should excel in giving. Christians excel beyond. They go beyond what's easy, natural, and normal. And you might say to yourself, is this a command from God? Is this something that God commands or expects Am I getting forced and coerced to do this? Look how Paul describes it here to his church. He says, I'm not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches, right? So he says, this is an actual test of your love because your giving represents love in action, not just merely love with words. And Paul is kind of squeezing them here saying that this giving is a test of how much you love other people because if you love other people you won't just say you will you'll actually demonstrate that with your generosity and it makes so much sense for people to read this and then say but i'm you know or even these people who are in this church and they say but i'm not rich why am i being tested for love why don't why don't you test the wealthy people Those are the ones who deserve a little testing. I don't know what it's like to have so much that I have room to just give or so much that I don't need anymore I can start giving stuff away. Well, he answers that and he goes on to say, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You already know that generous grace. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he can make you rich. So what does Paul say? Paul says, you may not be financially rich, but you have the richness of knowing Jesus and being known by God. You have spiritual wealth. You have hope, and you have joy, and you have eternity to look forward to. Everything you could possibly need on the inside, you already have. Christians have Jesus. Christians have grace from God. Christians have been brought into friendship with the creator of the universe. And Paul is saying, is this a command? No, it's a test of your love. You may be concerned about not having enough. I'm telling you that you have the generous grace of God. He has made, God has made believers, Christians, church members of God's church. He has made them wealthy and rich. And I think, and I hope you do too, we regularly need to be reminded of that. Especially when inflation prices are, you're like, oh my goodness, I can feel the squeeze. The dollar used to go this far, now it doesn't go as far. I used to be able to borrow, now it's unaffordable to borrow. I used to see my investments that were on a general trend upward, and now I can't even look at them. And then Paul, the apostle, is writing to the church, and he says, don't forget the generous grace that we've received, that we are wealthy in a different way, that is unique to people who don't know Jesus. And this brings to us this new giving attitude. And clearly, the self-giving death of Jesus, His self-sacrifice is a major motive for our generosity. It's a major driver. How do Christians excel at giving? How do they even do it? Well, Christians excel by giving from a gratitude attitude. There is a new attitude. It's not a giving attitude, it's a change, it's a transformation into something that actually rhymes to make it easy, in case you missed that. Giving out of your riches, um, your spiritual wealth of knowing God, giving out of your, the wealth of your salvation, giving beyond and out of all the benefits that flow from it. My greatest, by the way, our greatest debt, when you come to know Jesus, your greatest debt The wages of sin is what? Some of you know this. What's the payment? What's the wage? It's death. And yet God, by His great mercy, pays that debt for us. He pays our greatest debt. And then He says there's only one debt that remains, and it's your debt to love one another. Now you express that kind of love that you've received, and that debt has already been paid. The debt of death has already been paid. To eagerly love and to eagerly give to people is how we Work and pay that debt. So check this, check this out. This is Paul goes on in verse 11, and he says, Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning right, be matched now by your giving. And um, some of you remember, probably, do you remember about the time you very first time you came to really know, understand, believe, and receive Jesus? Raise your hand if you remember that phase of your life. Do you remember that phase of your life? Do you remember any eagerness? Do you remember some of the, like, lit up excitement um i know this i know if you were to hear from pastor rich pastor rich said he was so excited in that phase of life he realized now that he shouldn't have done some things and shouldn't have said some things and shouldn't have squeezed some people back then but what caused him to do that eagerness so eager just wants to go all in right at the beginning all in. And here's what Paul is saying. He said, Don't forget about when you were really, really eager to believe and receive and belong to Jesus. That eagerness now should kind of mature into an eagerness to give. It should be matched by your eagerness to give. So, what Christ has done, what Jesus has done for the Corinthians, is now to be reflected in what they do for other people. Reflected, shared demonstrated. And secondly, Christians excel by learning the attributes of generous giving. There is a really, really good chance that nowhere along the way, in the school that you attended, in the home that you were raised, in the workplace that you were employed, there's a very, very good chance that you did not learn to give there that you primarily and essentially learned to get. Right? So Christians oftentimes have to learn brand new, what are the attributes of generous giving? What is that even like? How should we give? Okay, I understand that we we should excel in giving, but how should we do it? The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, well, let's start by giving sacrificially. Verses 3 to 5, for I can testify that they, this other church, gave not only what they could afford, but far more. They went beyond what they believed that they could afford. Now, if, if you are trying to apply biblical principles to the way that you're handling your wealth, it would be very, very wise to start on a regular basis faithfully doing the right things to put yourself in a solid financial position, right? In other words, most people um, would be wise not to give, starting out, give sacrificially. Right? So I know the mortgages do, but did you see uh, by any chance verse 3 in chapter 8? I'm giving this mortgage payment away. Right? So there's wisdom in financial principles that come from the Bible, but on occasion there is an opportunity to give sacrificially. And here's what Paul's saying our hearts should make room for the opportunities that are given to us to on occasion give sacrificially. Some people used to say, um, I was challenged to give until it hurt what they mean is they were giving sacrificially. One church of lower economic standing. The Macedonian church here was giving to the church at Jerusalem who was in uh, financial distress. And they didn't just give what they uh, could afford. They gave sacrificially. Paul also says, give willingly. And they did it on their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. Look at this. What did they beg for? Did they beg to get? They didn't beg to get. They begged to be a part of the giving. Please let us be a part of blessing this other church. Um, It was a privilege to be able to share in the giving to the believers who were in Jerusalem. They did even more than we had hoped. It was such an inspiring look at a church that doesn't have a lot, but in fact gave willingly and gave sacrificially. Even more than they had hoped when they got the news back as to how much this church at Macedonia had given, they gave even more than they expected. And Paul goes on to say this, whatever you give is acceptable. Whatever it is, right? It's not a matter of the amount. Instead, it's a matter of how eagerly it's given. And what's important is the use of your gifts and your resources and your wealth. And in this case, the giving of money is a willingness to give. That's what's important. And the poor widow. Do you remember the, the poor widow that, that uh, is in the New Testament and Jesus is teaching on this giving of the poor widow? And Jesus commends her. And he commends her even though she had only given two copper coins. She was poor in resources, but she was rich in willingness and for some reason in God's kingdom that registered more than the amount was the level in which she was willing to give that two mites or those two copper coins mattered and weighed more than other people's heavy hefty giving because in God's kingdom there is a attribute called willingness that is important to him and it's this attitude which the apostle is commending paul is saying i commend this so so what if here's a here's a good question right and i think this is a reasonable question what if i'm not wealthy what if I'm not wealthy? What if I'm a part of God's church and I'm not wealthy? I don't have a lot to give to the church. I don't have a lot to give to other people. I don't have a lot to give to other causes, no matter how important and effective they may be. Um, Paul says, give proportionately. Because the amount isn't important to Paul and to God's church, but instead, give in proportion to what you have. And this is the, the two copper coins idea from, this, from the widow's giving. Proportion is more essential than amount. Proportion is more important to God than amount. Give from what you have. And I love this. This is so wise and so practical. Give from what you have, not after you have collected enough to give. Right? It, have you discovered this? If you're a regular giver, have you noticed, no matter where you're giving or how you're giving, have you noticed that at some point in your life you just had to decide to start giving because if you would have waited until you had enough to give, you'd still, be, <laughs> you'd still be waiting? Like, how much is enough? How much is enough? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's vital. So proportion giving means that both the rich and the poor can share in the joy of giving. That's what it means, proportion giving. I remember um, watching my dad. um, Now, uh, I've mentioned this to you over the years several times before, but my mom had so much booming faith, she gave what I believe when I look back now, um, I'm going to just guess she gave to televangelists all of our money. I'm just going to, that's my guess. And how do I know that? Based on the body language of my dad and, you know, I'm pretty sure that um, she she sent away all of our money, and uh, one time she said to me, Dan, I give my money away. It's seed faith. I'm going to plant a seed, and then I'm going to expect an increase, and one day she stopped me, and she said, look at this. She's got an envelope in her hand. She's waving it. I said, what you got there? She said, it's my increase. I said, really? And it was already open, and she said, look at this, and I opened it up. And um, by the way, this is like on the heels of my mom giving thousands of dollars away to TV evangelists. You remember the vow of faith, right? Do you remember that kind of talk my, my mother gave? Like, I don't even know how much. Just She made a vow of faith probably over and over and over and over and over again, right? So the vow of faith for this one particular minister was $1,000. I'm assuming she gave um, much, much more than that based on... Uh, A lot of science, but anyway. So when she handed me the envelope, I opened the envelope and I pulled out a rebate check from the insurance company for seventy-five dollars. And I said, "Mom, I'm doing the math. I'm not great at math, but this is a decrease. This is not an increase. If you give away thousands and you get seventy-five bucks, what is that called, everybody? A decrease. It's not an increase." And my dad, as a result, I remember watching him on occasion on Sunday morning. Um, some of you remember not too long ago a plate would go by or a bag, an offering plate would go by on Sunday morning. And um, I remember my dad, here's one of the signs that I thought my dad probably gave away, my, my, my mom probably gave away all their money. My, my dad used to do this really funny thing that my sister and I would watch, and that is whatever bill he had in his hand, we didn't know what it was because he would origami it. I mean, he would, it was, it was, he would fold this thing up into such a small little tiny thing. He could wrap his little man hands like I've got right around the whole thing. You wouldn't even see it. And he'd put his whole hand in the offering bag and then pull his whole hand out. And you're like, was that a dollar? Was that $100? We don't know. You know why we didn't know? Because he didn't want us to know and it didn't necessarily matter and this is important because when god is looking at what my dad gave god is looking at what my mom gave he is not registering in heaven for all eternity how much he is registering the generosity of proportion you give out of what you have you don't wait to give until you get more i can assure you you will always be waiting to get more i do I wait till I get more until I am stricken with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is practice what you preach, dummy. Give something. Give out a proportion. Give something for this cause. Give something because it is proportion to what you have. Give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. It's amazing how envy hits us, right? It's so, it's so easy to envy what somebody has, but there are some of us who are givers who envy what, we, what other people are able to give. It's like, when does envy stop, right? It's just all the way down in our hearts. So give proportionately, and this is a means by which the rich and the poor can share in the joy of giving. You don't have to wait until there's more to give a little bit. And then also give expectantly. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously gets a generous crop. What does that mean? It means there is some expectation. And I think this is important to say. We don't give because something is coming, right? But we give expecting that... It will. In other words, if you are a farmer and you are planting seeds, when the right season comes, should you expect a harvest? Yes, you should expect it. Why? Because that's the way nature works. Well, there's a nature here too that this metaphor works for giving and our generosity. The one who plants genero- generously will get a generous crop. Expect your generous giving to expand your reaping. You should expect it. In God's economy, it's not why we give, but it's a part of giving. The more you give, the more you receive. Now, I also think it's important to recognize this word is expected. It, it isn't demand it. Doesn't it get weird when you start telling God what he ought to do? I think it does. Like, you know, you start demanding, God, I sowed this, and, and now I'm expecting to reap this, and you didn't do whatever. That just, I just like cringy, cringy, telling God you didn't do or you ought to do or demanding. This is a principle for giving, not a purpose for giving. And it's one of the attributes. So, also, church members learn to grow out of, church members learn to grow out of, they they move in their spiritual life, in their spiritual maturity, they grow out of stinginess. Church members who belong to God's church, they, they mature out of reluctance. They mature out of cynicism, closed-handedness, and so on. And they mature into a heart condition. There's a transformation in the heart condition, and they mature into a heart condition that is able, that has the ability to give cheerfully. Church leaders avoid using pressure and coercion. That's biblical. Church leaders must avoid coercion and pressure. And I like to think of it this way. God is a much better fundraiser by His Holy Spirit than any preacher or pastor will ever be on the platform. And church members avoid reluctance and guilt. You must each decide in your own heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Right? There is a reasonable... Reluctance. Now, if you've—I uh, already mentioned TV evangelists, right? And if you've been a part of a church that had some abusive financial situations happening and going on, um, I would say—and I would grant you this—reluctance is reasonable, right? Do you agree with that? There's you, there's discernment and wisdom and just good management and good stewardship. If I give. Um, and one, another reason that reluctance is reasonable is because it's reasonable to say, if I give, will I have enough for what I need? If I give, will I have enough for what I need? And here, Paul answers this question. He says, and God will generously provide all you need. So you give cheerfully knowing that God will provide all that you need then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So, in other words, the, the, the um, responsibility ultimately for providing everything you need comes from God, and you are able to give cheerfully, knowing that God's generosity will always be enough to provide everything that you need. By the way, it's important to point out, too, that this word is need, right? In our culture, we have to make a difference between God provides everything we need rather than um, mistakenly reading that word to say want so important. God is giving to you. And how much does He give us? He gives us enough for Him to give through you. God gives to you, but then He even provides more. Even if it's a little, He provides enough to give through you to meet the needs of other people. So what do we do now? Well, we focus on how spiritually rich Jesus has made you. That's where our attention is. That's where we tune in. That's where our mind is on. It replaces a laser focus on uh, what more we want or what more we're dreaming of owning, our focus on what God has given us. If you've ever lost every material possession, you still have the eternal riches of knowing God and being known by God. So, one of the ways that we focus on this, on being spiritually rich, is on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, we receive what's called communion. You have some elements there in your seats nearby, and if uh, you have more than one, make sure you send it down. There are people that are um, probably looking for theirs nearby. Communion is a reminder. It's the remembrance. It's the continuing on of the riches that God has given us. So we're going to give you a second here to carefully get that cap off of that element. And then we're going to do a few things together. Number one, we're going to pray together. We're going to receive communion together. We're going to sing and celebrate together. And then I want to invite you to let us pray with you. So if you're here today, and even if you're tuned in on our live stream, I want to invite you to be a part of the time that we put ourselves before God and say, God, we need you, we depend on you, and we're looking for you to intervene and bring some kind of unique touch in my life. And we're going to do that through praying together. First, you've got in your hands elements. I just want to mention that if you belong to Jesus, you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have rooted your life and trust in his work to save your soul, not your own work, you're invited to receive communion with us. It's not closed here to our church attenders and members. You're a part of God's church um, universally, and we welcome you to enjoy communion with us. But if you're not quite sure, if you've placed your trust in Jesus to save your soul, if you're still kind of hoping that the way you live and and the amount of faith that you have or whether or not you're obedient to God counts in your credit. We want you to wait so that you can, when you finally do fully trust Jesus, you can receive communion with full joy and share with the grace that compels us to celebrate this. And So we encourage you to wait until you have full understanding or full acknowledgement. You you completely understand that you've received and rested your trust in Jesus. If you bow your heads with me, Father, we pray that you just search the hearts of our church family, church attenders, no matter what they're facing today, no matter how much they're carrying, I pray that you'd help them to be just sense some focus on how much that you have already accomplished for them. Would you get a, help them to get a sense for the amount of sin that Jesus took upon himself to bring freedom to them? How the wage for that sin was death, but Jesus gladly took it upon himself and brought us the freedom, not just to receive, but the freedom to give. And we thank you for and pray that you'd you working in our hearts when we remember what you've done. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Would you receive that symbol of the broken body of Jesus, that bread? In the same way, He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me. As often as you drink it, for every time you eat this this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Would you receive that symbol of the blood of Jesus? as a part of his family that's remembering and celebrating and rejoicing.